صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 ام اند مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Very excited. Uh, Rob and I are joined today by a wonderful Palestinian woman, Tasneem. Good morning, Tasneem. Good morning, Nasser. Good morning to you, you and good morning to our listeners. So, Tasneem, you're an Australian-Palestinian woman. Take us through your Palestine journey. How did you end up in Australia? Your mother, father, are they yeah. 48ers, 67ers? How did we get here? Well, how I came to Australia, before Australia, we... Um, We migrated from Jordan to New Zealand. So my parents are, well, from my dad's side in 1948, um, when the Nakba when the happened, um, we're from Yaffa. So that was in 1948. So they fled to Gaza as refugees. Uh, so that's my grandparents. From both sides, Tasneem? No, from my dad's side. From my dad's so, side, yep. Yeah, so then um, they, then my grandparents started their family in uh, Gaza. So my grandma had some of her children there. And then in 1967, which is not that far away from, you know, 1948, <laughs> that's when they had to um, leave to Jordan. So that was their second exile. So from, yeah, so in Gaza, they were in refugee camp and then they went to Jordan in a different refugee camp in Amman. It's a, it's quite a well-known one. It's called Mukhayyam al-Hussein. Yeah, like my, my grandparents were living there like for most of my childhood. So only in the past, like in the past five years, my grandma um, and grandpa who's passed away now, Allah irhamu, rented out of the Mukhayyam, out of the camp. Uh, whereas since 1967 until basically, I don't know how long ago, maybe five years ago or something, they were in that camp. And that's where my my dad went to school in one of the Unerwa schools, the United Nations ones. You know, all their medical clinics were run by the UN as well. Um, yeah. And the way that that camp is divided, even the way that it got built, it went from, you know, those type of, tin, I don't know if it's tin, but it's that kind of metal Corrugated type. iron, yeah. Yeah, that iron. And then um, the Jordanian government kind of gave, gave up on the idea of return in some way and then gave them permission to build. So then all the families who were were residing in that camp built just you know these very odd house structures because that was also a temporary idea you know it was about oh let's just put this you know few rooms and a roof together mm. and they were all piled up next to each other so when you go and visit that camp the roads are numbered by number they don't even have names it's like road one road two road three and then there's like a one big street and then you have the roads so uh road one has like a top and a bottom and then you have 
this just one big street. Yeah, the way it's built really tells that story of of the Palestinian struggle and its history, not only of being dispossessed, but also the political kind of conversations and demands that were happening at the time. Because yeah, it was a, a tem- it was always considered like a temporary yeah. situation. But, but they truly thought that they'd be able to move again, didn't they? And so they thought, we'll wait here until that permission comes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's never come. Yeah, n- it never. <laughs> yeah, n- it never um, came. Um, but my mum's family, so bec- because they're from Yabad, Jenin, which was in the West Bank, mm-hmm. so they were considered under the Jordanian sort of uh, Jordanian governance. Mm-hmm. So then when 1967 happened, they had to flee. So they were exiled as well to Jordan and they um, settled in, in Zarqa or Zara, which um, is outside of Amman, uh, also in a refugee camp. But they had a higher status within Jordanian society because of that status. Mm-hmm. The most um, disadvantaged of the Palestinians in Jordan were the ones who came from Gaza, yeah. um, who were considered to be on just like what I think they call it awathika. So they didn't have the just it, it was it's just like a temporary Jordanian two year yeah. temporary residency. Yeah. So so even though my dad was there from basically he, my dad's born 1963. So, you know, from 1967 till we left Jordan in the 90s, he was basically there on a two-year temporary visa and everyone in his family had to keep renewing it. Whereas, yeah, so that, so that, crea- that created some kind of like uh, class difference between Palestinians even in Jordan. But yeah, in terms of coming to New Zealand, it, these are the factors why. So after my parents got married, um, as Palestinians, a big part of the way that, you know, a big part of our discourse and what we invested in at that period of time is education as a way to, you know, overcome the conditions that you're in and the circumstances, but also to take your cause and to fight for it with some power that you gain through education. So both my parents, even though they were in the... Yeah, even though they were in those um, really disadvantaged positions, both their families were like, no matter what, you're going to um, get degrees. So for my mum, because she was Jordanian, she was able to get a scholarship through high grades as well in high school. And then she studied computer science in the University of Jordan in Amman. And then my dad through a scholarship, I think so. But yeah, he studied engineering. And then as as students after they graduated they kind of met through different networks and then that's how they got married um even though you do have that kind of a little bit of upward mobility because of the discrimination in jordan and especially like ideological as well if you've been a student organizer in some way you face a lot of barriers when it comes to work so then my parents decided to start applying outside of Jordan so that they can guarantee for us some sort of opportunity and stability and whatnot. So then that's, yeah, 
they basically just picked up and went to New Zealand where they didn't know the language or know anything about New Zealand. And that was in 1996 when the, they did the application. So I was, I think, five. And then by the time we got to New Zealand, I was six. And that's me and my three sisters. We were the ones born in Jordan. And then my other siblings came after. In New Zealand... How many um, siblings do you have? So we're six in total. Okay. It's a good um, Palestinian family, Rob. It's a good Palestinian family. <laughs> one yeah. for mum, one for dad, and four for the revolution. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, always big families. Actually, my dad's family is eight children, and then my mum is ten children. <laughs> so they were, um, with my mum's family, like all ten of them were living in a really small kind of, I think, two-bedroom all for the whole family. And, but, yeah, in New Zealand, we were, like, the schools there, they were predominantly white. So I experienced a lot of culture clashes, but also I didn't know it was racism then, but that sense of being inferior. And one thing that really upset me at that time that I, I still kind of, it, you know, it leaves its scars. It's that sense of like, I was so fluent in Arabic. And then when I got into that New Zealand classroom, because I was six, so I was put into grade one. Like I didn't do kinder there. Then it mm. was... Like, I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to talk to anyone who was there. So that, that's something that still left, like, a, a mark. And it gave me an insight into, yeah, I guess, in, I don't know if we can call it institutional racism, but just knowing that you're othered, mm -hmm. but it also came with that sense of inferiority too. Because it's not like you don't know English because you know another language. It was you don't know English because, you know, you're behind or all these other things that we associate with refugees. It's crazy when you think about it because the refugees often speak two or three languages. Yeah. Because they struggle with English, the, the majority of people go, oh, my gosh, you've got no idea. And when you yeah. think of language or your second language, it's crazy. But it's what happens. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, New Zealand has a different kind of um, uh, environment. So, you know, Maori people, um, in terms of the way that the, the, the population is distributed. So we were in Auckland and at school there was always Maori people. We were like, the anthem was done in Maori. Uh, the settler colonization we could see it in the experiences of our Maori peers, the effects of it. But at the same time, we were aware as well of, they were there with us within the same classrooms. Whereas when we came to Australia, I came here when I was in um, year seven, I was very surprised that like, where are the Aboriginal people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big difference here. The, the colonialism, the massacres, the erasure, was far more complete in Australia than it was in, in New Zealand. There, there are those differences, yeah, especially like, you know, it depends where you are because in Melbourne City, there's certain areas where, you know, Aboriginal people might be residing, but then there are very, there are areas that are like more, uh, for example, Arab populated or Asian or Indian. And so there isn't, so there's that segregation that it, it creates that sense of, like you, you feel it like this is such a white country. The main reason I bring those experiences up, I guess, is to kind of 
uh, reflect on becoming conscious of my own racialization and also um, understanding racism in these contexts that I grew up in. I've got a dear friend in New Zealand, his name, and in New Zealand, something like one in six people is actually a Maori or has Maori descendancy, as opposed to yeah. in, in Australia, it's like one in 50. And that yeah. one in 50, when, you, when you're in Melbourne or Victoria and huge chunks of Sydney, you yeah. know, is not, is not one in 50, it's like one in 400. It's not yeah. until you go in yeah, yeah. and west that you start getting the sort of numbers that uh, balance that out. We're going to go to a break right now to stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to go from here to America. So stay tuned and we'll be right back after the break. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and events are still moving very quickly in America with George Floyd. Uh, Protests on the street, White House is burning, President Trump is holding the Bible upside down and backwards. Marbo Day, June 3, just passed, where the High Court ruled uh, in Marbo's favour and overturned Terra Nullius. Uh, nothing's happened since then, of course. We had the situation uh, in Sydney where a 16-year-old boy had his leg swept by uh, a police officer and the police commissioner said the police officer was having a bad day. Couldn't help but think, you know, why is it that only coloured people ever at the, at the end of a police officer's bad day? We had 432 deaths now in custody since the last Royal Commission in 1992. Over 300 recommendations in that Royal Commission, none fully completed. 2015, David de Gungay, 26, eight times calls out, I can't breathe, dies. No, no charges on the police officers that killed him. Uh, the, the coroner said that it was bad training that they didn't understand the, the concept of positional asphyxiation. We're still waiting for the outcome of the 10-year day inquest. We've got the situation in, in America, George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, you know, who was hunted from a ute, uh, Tamar Rice, a 12-year-old, Eric Gardner, who couldn't breathe, selling cigarettes that Rob Weiss spoke about last week. Yeah. In Palestine, we had a young autistic boy who was, is profoundly deaf, executed with 12 bullets as he cowered behind a, a rubbish bin. We spoke about it last week, but, you know, the second anniversary of Razan, Najad, a nurse in uniform, executed by the Israeli sniper force. We've got a situation there between the United States, Israel and Australia, where three settler colonialist states continue to kill wantonly and looting the people. Tasnim, take us through um, all of that and perhaps uh, towards the end, if you could talk about uh, this afternoon's rally. I guess it's, it's quite heavy. Um, this, this past week has been difficult. Just um, I don't know if it's a week or a bit over, you know, seeing uh, the video of um, the the murder of George Floyd. And I think when, when it circulated, those of us who watched it didn't realise because of how many of these um, videos 
get circulated and um you know th- there's a response and then we just didn't realize the magnitude of what would happen next but um i think it struck a nerve in a way that that yeah we're seeing now um his, uh, historical we're living through a historical moment and um there's a lot that can be said about you know how come we're here at this point but i think for me you know because i did watch that video when you're watching it you know that the person has been murdered and this is why you're watching that video but still you're what as you're watching you're hoping that something will happen where you know the officer will get off or i don't know because there were i think particularly this one because it wasn't like a police shooting that was immediate and then you know it moved on it was very long about 9 minutes and on the street yeah. yeah um and people people were there so i think like seeing the people screaming trying to negotiate trying to like appeal to this officer's morality uh, not just him but all the four of them and then you know saying to them you're bogus you're this you're that but like to for you know it's like he was just like a brick wall or a machine or something where there, there was no budging at all so i think you know seeing that and then for me finding out that the person that called the cops on george over a 20 dollar fake bill was a palestinian and that this all happened outside a palestinian store you know it it really like it it it's been you know it, it's been just devastating to witness and to to um absorb all of that but also it got me really really angry mm-hmm. because you know and we should say i mean the, the anger is from our c- complicity and because yeah. our, our argument as an oppressed um majority in palestine but as settlers ourselves whether that be in the united states or in australia we need to understand when you call the police on a black man that 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 in that can be the many, well, in many correct rob it's it's like a death sentence you're calling in a hit squad these guys yeah. no, none of them come gently yeah yeah and yeah exactly like um and then for me it was it, there was just so much gaslighting afterwards you know and push like going back and forth on oh well you know you that's what you have you supposed to do you call the cops and and whatever and then like you know not just myself like you know many of us were like what are you talking about like if it was if this occurred um you know in palestine where you know israel you would not call the israeli soldiers or any of the israeli forces on someone who's showing you a fake bill yeah because you no, see them happen. yeah you you're just not going to do that you see them in a in a certain way and it and the question is why do we not see the settler colonial powers whether it's in australia or in the us 
in a similar light, in a similar kind of criminal, uh, thuggish, you know, light. Yeah. In the desire to assimilate Tasnim, one of the one of the you know the hierarchies of status is as long as somebody's beneath you, you're closer to the top. What what the Palestinian shop owner doesn't realise in his compliance with that white rule, white law, in, in, in his desire to be whiter in complying, he doesn't realise that he can't ever be white. Today, the white guy and, and, and that store owner perhaps they're well they are looking down on George Floyd. But at no point is that owner ever going to be white or accepted as white. You know, there, there is all of that. But at, at the same time, it's, it's also like this, it, there's this implicit racism of, of seeing a black man as dangerous, a threat, a criminal, already guilty. Mm-hmm. And this is why they deserve, you know, the full force of law enforcement like brought in against them or him in particular. So if, if, if we had Edward Said to break down Orientalism for us, yeah. the humanization we've had on us, the reality of the, the, the black man and woman and what, how they've been portrayed. Uh, and Muhammad Ali's got a, a, a fantastic two minutes where he talks about, you know, everything that's good is white and everything that's bad is black. Yeah. Taking from them and the protests that we've got there, Black Lives Matter movement, America's burning. At one point, every state in America had um, protests. We're meeting this afternoon, Tasnim, two o'clock in front of state parliament. You're one of the organisers of or, or facilitating, helping with a group there. Tell us about yeah, that and how, yeah. how we can support it. From all of these um, discussions, I guess it comes down to, like, as Palestinians, um, how are we uh, locating ourselves and how are we imagining uh, and perceiving ourselves because when when we work through that that's what will prompt us to articulate a solidarity and and commit to a solidarity towards liberation so you know we've organized this a palestinian contingent for palestinians if they want to be within an inner group of familiar people or pro-palestinian supporters um that they can come and that way we can you know, be together at the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance rally that is for Black Lives Matter, meaning Indigenous and Black here in Australia. You know, we can't forget that when we're talking about the US, it's also about Native lives, about, you know, the race, the settler colonial ongoing genocide there as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have this contingent, but I think another powerful reason why why it's important to uh, come together as Palestinians for Black Lives Matter or Palestinians against deaths, Aboriginal deaths in police custody is yeah. because uh, we can draw those links uh, between Israel and Australia and we can also make it clear that uh, you know, Zionism is racism. And so we make that point within our community, but we also make that point within... Uh, what we're seeing is, for example, um, some liberal Zionists who are also expressing their support for Black Lives Matter and who are trying to kind of hijack this yeah. moment to propagate 
you know, a certain kind of normalization with Israel and whatnot. Um, and, and this is just like their common tactics anyway. But but our presence, uh, it it's there out of a principle, out of a solidarity, but also out of resistance to the structures of oppression that we're subjected to. So, you know, th- there are many aims of why I see that it's important for us to be there, not just like as anyone who's just shown up to the rally, but we're there as Palestinians for black lives. The Palestinian contingent listeners is going to be on the south side steps of Parliament House, top of Collins Street. There'll be a Palestinian flag there. I'll be there. Rob's going to join me and uh, to stem also, but also a whole bunch of other crew. So if you're free, two o'clock today, so you've got enough time to have some lunch and put on some warm clothes and join us. One thing you'll notice today is the police officers and just how stormtrooperish they look like. And Rob, before we came on air, you, you were speaking about the training programs. Oh, yeah, one of the important bits that most people don't know is that police around the world, especially America, are trained by the Israeli police. And the Israeli police practice, and it's a horrible way to say it, but they practice on Palestinians. And the one that they've, it's the knee-on-neck restraint is what it's called. And that's the one where you'll see pictures all through Palestine where they've done it to the Palestinian kids and people have died, they've had their necks broken. And, you know, they're using it fantastically well uh, in America on the African-American community. It's a, it's a disgrace. This was the manoeuvre that police officer used to kill George Floyd. Yeah, yeah. And it's the one, and it, I mean, it's that powerful. You can see the police officer sitting up there. He basically had one hand in his pocket. He wasn't, wasn't struggling at all. And also by him sitting like that, you could tell that he had no fear for his life. And so he just slowly squeezed the, the death out of, out of the man. When I saw the information circulating um, about this, um, I, I was also thinking it would be helpful to frame it as an exchange rather than, you know, Americans are trained by Israel because, you know, Americans also train. Fun. Train Israelis, yeah. And yeah, and fund Israelis. So it's like an exchange. They are cooperating on racial oppression. Like this is what their job is to figure out all these, you know, advanced ways to to do these um, genocidal, colonial, racist projects. There's no master servant here. They're both masters. As Palestinians, looking at what's happening on the street in the U.S., we're seeing the tear gas. We're seeing uh, it's a military occupation. I mean, in the U.S., it's not. A, it's not a military occupation, but the police there operate as they terrorize, you know, um, indigenous and black people. So, but we're we're seeing also the military being brought out in Washington, and then you know all, mm. all the curfews and everything. So, it's not like <laughs> these are mm. paramilitary police forces. We've come yeah. to the end of the show, so thank you very much for joining us, Tasnim. We'll look forward to seeing you this afternoon and some of our listeners. Yeah, thank you. I always wonder when I went to church on Sundays. I've always been one to, I'm not just a box. I do a lot of reading, a lot of studying. I ask questions. I go, I travel these countries. I watch how people live and I learn. And I always ask my mother, I said, Mother, how come is everything white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's Supper all white men? Angels are white. Pope and Mary and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? <laughs> I said, oh, I know. If the white folks was in heaven too, 
in the black angels were in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. <laughs> Listen, you quit saying that, boy. I was always curious, and I always wondered why I had to die to go to heaven. Why I couldn't have pretty cars and good money and nice homes now? Why do I have to wait till I die to get milk and honey? And I said, Mama, I don't want no milk and honey. I like steaks and and I said, milk and honey is a laxative anyway. Do they have a lot of bathrooms in heaven? So anyway, I was always curious. I always wondered why. You know, Tarzan is the king of the jungle in Africa. He was white. And I saw this white man swinging around Africa with a diaper on, hollering. Oh! Do you all see Tarzan over here? Right. Show Tarzan? And all the Africans, so he's beating them up and breaking the lion's jaw. And here's Tarzan talking to the animals. And the Africans been there for centuries, and he yet can't talk to the animals. Only Tarzan can talk to the animals. I always wonder why. And Miss America was always white. All the beautiful brown women in America. Beautiful suntans, beautiful shapes, all type complexions. But she always was white. And Miss World was always white. And Miss Universe was always white. And then they got some stuff called White House Cigars. White swan soap, king white soap, white cloud tissue paper, <clears throat> white rain hair rinse, white tornado flow wax. Everything was white. And the angel food cake was the white cake, and the devil food cake was the chocolate cake. So, Mama, why is everything white? I always wondered, you know, and, and the president lived in the White House. <laughs> and Mary had a little lamb, his feet as white as snow, and snow white. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck. And the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. So mama wanted to call it white mail. They lied too. I was always curious. And then and this is when I knew something was wrong. The immutable Muhammad Ali. And don't forget, 2 p.m. State Parliament. Join us. And as always, free Palestine.